Welcome to episode two of Our Seven Neighbors, a new seven-episode podcast brought to you by the Interreligious Institute at Chicago Theological Seminary. My name is Kim Schultz, and I'm your host. This podcast will bring you a story, an interview, and a conversation that will hopefully teach us, inspire us, and perhaps most importantly, activate us to be better neighbors, no matter your religious or non-religious background. Today, we are meeting some amazing people. Okolo Rashid is an African-American Muslim woman and founder of the International Museum of Muslim Cultures, located in the deep, deep South. We had a chance to speak with her and look forward to her sharing her story. We also meet Mayor Ted of Clarkston, Georgia. Clarkston hosts the most diverse square mile in the whole of the United States. We'll talk to him and hear how Clarkston does it and why. And lastly, we are joined by theologian, author, and local activist Susan Thistlethwaite. Susan, along with our own Rabbi Dr. Rachel Mikvah, will pull it all together for us. So, let's get started. Akola Rashid is based in Mississippi. We met her in Clarkston, Georgia, though, attending her daughter Asila Rashid's iftar event with Muslim Mix. Muslim Mix, of which Asila is a founder, is a progressive, millennial Muslim organization doing great work with young people in Georgia. The apple seems to not fall far from the tree, as her mom is doing some amazing work on her own in the deep south, facing racism, Islamophobia, and then some. But not giving up hope. Here's Akolo. My name is Okola Rashid, and I am the president and co-founder of the International Museum of Muslim Cultures, America's first Islamic history and culture museum. What makes it unique for us in Mississippi is that, you know, you wouldn't expect that you would have, number one, the first Muslim museum in Mississippi in the Bible Belt, and one that really focuses on the international Muslim community. Uh, the museum was founded by a Palestinian who is married to a Mississippi Anglo-American and my husband and I, African-American Muslims, you know. And so we have a, we have a pretty diverse Muslim community in, in Jackson that we, you know, spent most of our lives, my husband and I, in organizing, you know, the diverse Muslim community really to really show what Islam speaks of, you know, in terms of the fact that there is, you know, one God, one humanity, you know, we're really one community. And so we've worked probably the last uh, 30 years on really trying to make that happen. And the museum is really one of the fruits of that. The museum was born out of an idea that, you know, just really wanting to make manifest this idea of Muslim diversity, right? And, you know, we opened the museum in April 2001, and then, of course, September the 11th happened. And the next day after, after that, you know, horrible incident, we came to the museum and someone had thrown a brick in, in our window, right? And so we just felt that we were going to have to close the museum then, right? But we started to get Christian ministers, <laughs> to start to come to the museum, educators that said that they would prefer their students learn from a more educational environment instead of what they were seeing on TV. And we got the mayor, this was the first African-American mayor at the time, that actually worked to 
help us do a fundraiser to keep the museum open. We thought we were going to have to close it, but the, the community has truly rallied around the museum, and so we feel it's really standing up against, you know, this kind of uh, being affected, you know, that they're going to jump in there and get, and get involved. And, and the Mississippi community, it is a really untold story and an unknown story because much of what people know and think about Mississippi is that it's probably the number one, you know, racist eight in the country, but there are some real pockets of really people that are just as concerned about the issues of America really manifesting its diversity, its democracy, and those kinds of things than it is anywhere else. And really, I think that we got a real story to tell, to be quite honest. We feel that Mississippi ha has really something to offer. And that's a part of the work that we're doing there in Mississippi, but we w really want to expand that. We want to really show people that Mississippi can be an example of how you can resolve these kinds of problems. It's interesting because, you know, coming up as a child, you know, of course, we knew nothing about Islam. We, you know, being, you know, in a sharecropping family deep in the Delta or in rural Mississippi, you didn't know much about the freedom movement and those kinds of things. But as time went on and as we began to hear these messages of Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, you know, Emil Worthadine Muhammad and other Islamic leaders, as well as, you know, civil rights leaders, then you began to kind of have a deeper kind of reflection and it really touches something that you've always been feeling. That's my, that's my story, right? Is that as a child, well, well, let me just say this. Once I came into understanding of what it means to be, be human, what does that look like, then you understand that you always had these, this kind of development already there. It's not like somebody is giving you or telling you something. So it really just opens that up. I'm hopeful because as a Muslim in America today, many of those ideas that we've been researching and we've been using to actually engage people are ideas that we feel that if people embrace those, this idea of the oneness of God, there's one God, right? There's one humanity, right? All human beings are born free and born equal. And they have this sense of dignity that God has created in all of us, right? And so that, to me, is a message. It's not about being Muslim. These are universal concepts, you know. And so I'm very hopeful that the work that we're doing and the work that other groups and organizations are doing to really bring us together to really understand this common humanity, it's going to really make a difference. So I'm, I'm, I'm a Muslim that's very hopeful. I'm not the Muslim that feel, you know, the sense of this kind of attack and those kinds of things, though it's happening. But I think that we're going to get through this. Ted Terry is the mayor for a small Georgian town called Clarkston, located just outside Atlanta. Clarkston boasts a home to hundreds of ethnicities and religions. Over 40,000 refugees have been resettled in Clarkston. Mayor Ted spoke to us in the busy coffee shop hub in town called Refuge Coffee. Refuge Coffee does amazing work, by the by, welcoming and employing young refugees new to the community. Check them out at refugecoffeeco.com. In the meantime, here's the mayor. Welcome to Clarkston, Georgia. 
United States of America. Clarkson is known as the most ethnically diverse square mile in America. Uh, we're just 20 minutes uh, east of downtown Atlanta, and we're here at the Refuge Coffee Company. So what benefits does this very diverse community bring to Clarkston? Clarkston, to me, represents the best of what America has to offer. Um, we are a nation of immigrants, and we have this amazing rich tradition going back hundreds of years of welcoming people who, through no fault of their own, were persecuted in their own homelands, but found refuge and sanctuary in our nation. To me, this feeling is best encapsulated by uh, a, a quote from Mark Twain that I always bring up when I do presentations on Clarkston. I say, uh, you know, Mark Twain wrote that travel is fatal to bigotry, prejudice, and narrow-mindedness, and that one cannot develop broad, wholesome views of the world by vegetating in one's own corner for one's entire life. And the bumper sticker is, travel is the only cure for ignorance. <laughs> and in a place like Clarkston, you really do get to travel not you know thousands of miles but you get to come up to the point of where you might be comfortable of what you know about the world and you know and, and people and then you can take one step forward and then if you really want to you know you know travel you can take a lot of steps forward in Clarkston and really open your mind and experience the things that in a lot of parts of America you don't get to experience. And this counter is really the narrative that's currently happening in the United States, right? And, and certainly yeah. the narrative of religious bigotry of the South or racism. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in some ways, to me, having been here 24 hours, um, Clarkson seems like a little magical Hamlet. You know, the sad reality is that even as we have become a more diverse nation, we actually have segregated ourselves and you know there's whole parts of this country that only are around people of the same religion the same skin color the same sort of you know economic status and in Clarkston we have this amazing diversity of cultures and languages and religions all living within this one square mile city and you know in a lot of ways it's even more i think emblematic and symbolic of how a future world and a future country that is becoming more globalized more diverse, where people are being forced to be around, you know, differences, <laughs> that it can work. And you think that, oh, you have a mosque uh, around the corner from a, a Buddhist temple, around the corner from a whole, you know, row of Christian churches. You think, oh, wow, why aren't there religious tensions and wars happening? You know, if you have the Rohingya Burmese, you know, with the Christian Burmese, you know, why, why aren't they, you know, and the Buddhists, why aren't they having conflicts? And to me, this is an example of you know, one, the liberties and the freedoms that we have enshrined in our Constitution in America that, you know, respect each other's, you know, expressions, but also, I think, just, you know, living in a country that has tremendous opportunities. And so, you know, people don't dwell on the superficial aspects or maybe the even, you know, the, the strongly held spiritual and religious aspects because we all have mutual respect for each other. And, you know, people are allowed to do their own thing as long as you're not going to, you know, mess with my thing. And then in that space that happens in the middle is community, it's commerce, it's food, it's culture, it's music, it's art. It's all the things that you want out of life, uh, you know. And it's amazing when you spend less time arguing over the things that are different that you actually create the space, you know, in your life, in your day where you get to do the things that are fun <laughs> and enjoyable. <laughs> what could the United States learn as a whole from Clarkston in terms of what you've learned and what you've done <laughs> Well, I think that by and large the United States and Clarkston are the same. I mean, you know, I, I, there's definitely people, again, there's people out there who think that a country that's becoming less white is a, a threat to them. And, you know, I say all the time that, you know, I've been to the future and, you know, Clarkston is a town that 
where I'm the minority. You know, it's 13% white. And when you look at our community, our society, our culture in Clarkston, yeah, we've got lots of really interesting layers of Ramadan, Iftar celebrations, and the Karen New Year, and the Ethiopian Independence Day, and Eritrean holidays, and you know, just a whole you know, hodgepodge of culturally and nationalistically relevant celebrations. But then we celebrate the 4th of July. We have Santa Claus come in on a fire truck with fireworks going off, um, giving gifts to the kids. Um, so the core aspects of what it means to be an American haven't been wiped out. They haven't been erased by some strange culture or, or some strange, you know, norms. You know, the, the essence of what it means to be an American still exists here. It's just a little bit more layered with more nuances and differences, which, you know, if you look at American history, has a hundred plus years layered with nuances of culturally appropriate things. I think that people see change as a threat to who they are. And what I can see in Clarkson is that things have changed, but they haven't replaced, right? And so if anything, we have too many holidays <laughs> in Clarkston, too many celebrations for me to go to. I, go, you know, I get to go to all of them, of course, because the mayor gets invited to everything. And um, you know, I, just, I, I wish sometimes that everyone could have the experiences that I have. There has been a clear drop in um, immigrants and refugees to the United States. How has that affected Clarkston? Well, since uh, the 2016 election and really later in 2017 with the travel ban, as well as the number of refugees being admitted through the resettlement program, Clarkston has seen a decline in new Americans arriving in the city. You know, part of our local economy is based around there being this sort of steady, you know, flow, you know, small but steady flow. We're talking, you know, before it was, you know, 10 or 20 families every couple of weeks were coming into Clarkston. It's, it's basically been cut in half. And so the economy here, in terms of like the local businesses, and if you go around Clarkston, you're going to see mostly you know, mom and pop owned organizations uh, and, and businesses. Um, there's not really chain restaurants here. And so, you know, the, the, the local grocery store is owned by a gentleman who's been here for 30 years. He said that his, you know, receipts went down by 30%, you know, when the travel ban was implemented. And that's just because people just weren't coming here. And so, you know, part of our local economy, you know, has been based in the last 30 years of there always being new people coming in which you know, has really added a lot to, I think, the vibrancy because you, you've been able to create an ecosystem where entrepreneurs and small business owners can really do well amidst sort of the larger gentrification and sort of increased urbanization that's happening and sort of closer into Atlanta. Even in this atmosphere of immigrants are a problem, even in this atmosphere of we don't need to take in refugees, we still are taking in refugees. So it's, I think it's a testament to how strong this program is. You know, it is the most highly vetted, secure way that you can immigrate to America. I mean, they're talking about 22 different things you have to go through, security checks, background interviews before you can be accepted as a refugee into America. And so, you know, I tell people all the time that, you know, we can debate about DACA and the Dreamers and the pathway to citizenship are there. We can talk about economic migrants and work visas and, you know, talk about the wall and border security. Like, all of those things are important things to discuss. The refugee resettlement program has been the most successful part of our immigration system. It is the part of our international relations and diplomacy that allows us to lead by example 
And so to me, it's just this amazing one way to, to lead by example, to be a leader in the world for compassion and to stand up against people who have been persecuted because of their identity, their political affiliation, their religion. And then also just the, the fact that if people really are concerned about you know, the security and the vetting of who comes in this country, you know, we can say that in order to be a refugee, it is really, really difficult to go through and to make it through all of that vetting. And so I think to me, it's like, it's a win-win for the people who value security and border security and the people who want to be a welcoming nation. Um, and so if anything, we should be increasing the refugee resettlement program, not decreasing it, because I actually think that our country would benefit more from more refugee resettlement. And I would say that, I was just gonna ask you, what would you say to somebody from the Trump administration, or Trump, if he came to Clarkston? And I think probably that might be part of it. Is there anything else that you might communicate? Well, you know, the, the president made a comment about, you know, America's full. <laughs> you know, when you had that kind of rhetoric, like that we're full, like we don't need any more people, you know, you just, it's like, you, it's like you've never been to America. You know, we have so many young immigrants you know, some who were born here, some who came over when they were three years old or 16 years old, who, you know, this is their, this is everything they've ever known about, you know, they barely remember their home country, but this is their home now, they're Americans. And they need Americans, you know, black, white Americans, native born Americans to say, hey, you know, we're really glad that you're here. Reverend Dr. Susan Thistlethwaite is an author and professor of theology emeritus, as well as past president of Chicago Theological Seminary. She currently lives in Colorado, working locally on justice issues. She and CTS professor, our very own Rabbi Dr. Rachel Mikva, listened to Ted and Okolo, and then spoke about the ideas of working for justice on the community level. Here's the Rabbi and the Reverend. Hi, I'm Rachel Mikva, and I'm so delighted to have here my friend and longtime colleague, Susan Thistlethwaite, as my conversation partner. Thank you, Rachel. I'm really glad to be with you. Susan, you've written public theology for all kinds of national outlets. Now you live in the Vail Valley in Colorado, and you contribute to the Vail Daily and do a lot of local organizing, which is relevant because today one of the things we want to talk about is acting locally. So we heard Okolo Rashid, the executive director of the International Museum of Muslim Cultures in Jackson, Mississippi, and Ted Terry, who just retired after six years as mayor in a small town in Georgia. So from your perspective, what's the magic of acting locally? The more I have written and been a local activist here in the Vale Valley, the more I have said to myself and to many others now how crucial this is. And, you know, for all the years that I wrote for the Washington Post or the Huffington Post, I would say act locally. But actually, when I have written something on the red flag law that is coming up in Denver, which passed, which enables police to take weapons away from someone who is deemed a danger to themselves or others. And I go to the post office and the lady behind the desk who's stamping my mail says, you know, I read what you wrote and I'd like to get involved. I agree that the impact often is far more visible. I did a little Googling of Mayor Terry's tenure as mayor 
He presided over the city council in the first year. They ended what had been a three-year moratorium on the refugee resettlement. And then, then they went on, of course, to become a welcoming city. They also made election day a holiday and a $15 an hour minimum wage and decriminalized marijuana possession and committed to 100% clean energy by 2050 and passed a non-discrimination ordinance and all kinds of things you could really see the measure of that you could get done because they were acting locally. The ripple effect is you do a little and it has more ripple effect is also my impression. So it can be harder to measure the impact of, say, a museum or an educational curriculum like the one that Ecolo was referencing, presumably their Timbuktu Human Dignity Program, which has been piloted in a few schools in Mississippi that's designed to help unleash the potential of the African diaspora. In your view, what's the power of these kinds of local efforts? I think the significance of crossing those intersectional areas of religious difference, racial difference, and seeing them as part of the same fabric of change, I thought that was very significant. I do think that the intersectionality of race and religion is a particularly volatile one right now as as religions have increasingly become racialized. Well, my first response in discovering this museum in Jackson was, what in the world is a museum devoted to Muslim cultures doing in Jackson, Mississippi? I don't know. What, it, <laughs> what, it, what was your thought? I have given up my there are no Muslims in this area, this area, this area. Now I know that I know better than that. I wasn't surprised that there were Muslims in Jackson, but that this would be one of the first U.S. museums dedicated to teaching about Muslim culture or history. And then I realized, but Jackson, and this goes to the back to the intersectionality you were talking about earlier, because I realized, you know, Jackson was at the central place in the civil rights struggle. And this really is an extension of that. One of the tragedies of talking about Islam in America is the frequent erasure of African-American Islam. And I really love that this museum does not do that, right? And by highlighting the cultures of West Africa and Islam in West Africa and recovering really the first Muslims in America being from Africa, I think it really restores some of that vital interreligious diversity that often gets erased when we're talking about about any minority tradition, but certainly about Islam here in the U.S. So I wanted to raise with you something that I think you and I, after the 2016 election, had a conversation, mostly crying into our <laughs> soup together, but, but also we had a conversation about acting locally, about seeing Washington for a while somewhat as a lost cause, not not giving up on it entirely, but really devoting, doubling down our efforts on acting locally. And I feel like you've done that with greater focus than me. I think it's really easy to get distracted by global and national politics. So I want to ask your insights about how you make that global, local tension productive in your own work? Well, you know, we, for all, for many years, all of us have said, think globally, act locally. But I don't think that's entirely true. You need to think locally as well. What's of concern to be, this is, I mean, Colorado as a whole 
is now a very Hispanic state. And I had to, in order to do voter registration, I had to dust off my Spanish. You know, let the local issues help you and educate you on where the global issues are. And I have noticed that is a real difference. And there was a, there is a very much older Hispanic man uh, who's an immigrant who is in our community. And I would say hello, but he would just nod, you know, just didn't speak to me very much. And then he walked by me when I was registering voters at Walmart. And he smiled when he saw me do that. And now it's like, I mean, it was the next day that I saw him and we were best buddies because he saw me making an effort and making an effort to reach out to his family and extended community to get them to be able to vote. It was just so startling to me that, you know, I had put a little bit forward and then he was like, okay, you're one of us. <laughs> yeah, I have an acquaintance who said to me, change moves at the pace of relationship and relationship moves at the pace of trust, which I thought was really wonderful way of thinking about how, how our smaller actions, but our work either around similar issues or work with somebody does build that trust where suddenly you are neighbor, suddenly you are partner, suddenly you are a familiar. Right. I think also that your insights about the importance of context and thinking locally and letting the context inform the way we think about national issues is really important. So I still get distracted because we can't separate the global and the local. So if we go back to Clarkston, Georgia, for instance, and think about the way that the Trump administration's travel ban not the one related to the coronavirus, but the one related really to whether or not you're Muslim, and the lower caps on refugees, both of these hurt Clarkston and impacted the work that they were trying to do. I find it hard to stay focused locally. I think that's a tension. I actually think that's a necessary tension, Rachel, because we have had this xenophobic, racist, sexist, you know, really culture of cruelty cultivated in the society deliberately over the last three and some years. And it has to bleed. I mean, it just absolutely has to bleed into our communities. You remember when Ted quoted Mark Twain and said, travel is fatal to bigotry, prejudice, mm-hmm. and narrow-mindedness? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was thinking, right, the U.S. is so diverse. Chicago is certainly so diverse. I don't have to travel very far. But a lot of people stay inside their comfort zone. Um, So how do we get out of that trap? How do we move out of our comfort zone? Well, you know, Mayor Ted was bringing up celebrations. Mm -hmm. And when I, for many, many years, volunteered on the U.S. Institute of Peace in our interreligious dialogue, we had a very secret meeting one time. It actually included two people from Saudi Arabia And that ended up becoming a working group for about a year and a half. And the first thing that David Smock, the organizer, asked us was about food and our experience of the food of the other cultures represented around the table. And I told my, you know, my story about my father working as a construction 
company, his construction company on a Jewish resort, Jewish kosher, we kept kosher, and that my my childhood food is kosher food. <laughs> and that, but I know I, I did not have that same experience of Muslim cultures and their food. And a woman who lived in Washington, D.C. heard me say that. And after the meeting, she dragged me to her house and stuffed me with <laughs> the food of her culture. She's Lebanese and did this quite frequently. Aggressive hospitality, we call that in the Middle East. Just that experience, that was my most powerful takeaway from a year and a half of the dialogue, quote, quote, dialogue that we were having about interreligious and international interreligious engagement. Right. Food is a great bridge. It is a great bridge. It's very frequent to plan interreligious programming around food and around a celebration. So, you know, a lot of the recording for this podcast series unfolded during Ramadan road trip and all the iftars through the South, right? So, but even people who attend, sometimes it's hard to get them to really engage and to feel like they've had a personal experience and a personal connection with somebody who orients around religion differently than they do. Because even when we want to make the effort, we don't always know how to move outside our comfort zones. But I remember when you told me that, first told me that story about growing up and essentially becoming connected to Judaism gastronomically. (laughs) That's a deep way of connecting to a tradition and Mm -hmm. the people who are sharing it. Let me just tag on a little something. I was reading today about the cities that have canceled St. Patrick's Day parades because of COVID-19, the coronavirus. What did the Irish do, right, to get St. Patrick's Day into American culture? St. Patrick's Day, it's a big deal. And this is a coup on the part of these immigrants, right? Because the no Irish signs that were up in the anti-immigrant fervor at the height of Irish immigration. I also really appreciated that Ted was trying to demonstrate how diversity adds to American culture without erasing it. Uh But then in his example of what had been universally embraced was Santa on the fire truck. Right, which is if that's the real America and these other parts are trying to become part of real America. Of course, Santa on the fire truck doesn't feel like real America to me. I mean, it's not part of my original America. And so I think that that reads a little bit of Christian privilege, but I think that the goal is precisely what you were saying of how do we, how can all of our traditions become integrated into what feels like an American tradition? You know, the columnist, and now commentator for CNN, Wahajit Ali. Waj is trying to get people who are not Muslim to use the phrase, inshallah, like now we, we would say gesundheit, right? And we not be German. Which of course means God willing, right? Yeah. So right. whenever yeah. you presume that something's going to happen, then you add it with a little taste of modesty, right? Inshallah. Yeah, exactly. So I have started doing this on uh, in social media and so forth on Facebook. When somebody wants a, you know, I want such a candidate to win. And I say, and I type in inshallah. And then people go, oh, yeah, sure, Sue. <laughs> and I mean, it's an uphill uh, struggle to get people to adopt that. But on the other hand, I think it's that same kind of effort. We are a changing, we've always been a society 
that changes and then staunchly, well, frequently, staunchly says, well, that's not a change. (laughs) So, I mean, it's both embracing change and this is absolutely normal. I love a couple of things that Ted Terry said. One was, I've been to the future, right? It's okay, essentially, right? It's it's okay living as a minority white person in a wonderful community of deeply committed, caring folks is really okay. And also when he said, when he was sort of challenging Trump's claim that America is full, right? And he said, I've never been to America. Mm -hmm. But I, I do love the stories that they were able to share with us and want to thank you so much for talking with us. Likewise, Rachel. And uh, I really want to thank you for doing this series. I think it's very important. Inshallah. Inshallah. (laughs) And so the work continues. Thank you for joining our conversation and meeting some neighbors. This podcast is community driven and you are part of our community. So we want your thoughts, your feedback, your questions, and we've set up a voicemail for that purpose. Call us and leave us a message. 773-896-2529. That's 773-896-2529. And we may play your comment or answer your question on future episodes. So let's be in conversation together. That number again, 773-896-2529. Or you can leave us a note on our Facebook page at the Interreligious Institute. Regardless, we look forward to hearing from you. And you can find Chicago Theological Seminary at ctschicago.edu. Join us next time for an episode featuring immigrants and refugees and those working with them to succeed in an episode we are calling Immigrant Matters. Join us for another story, interview, and conversation with your seven neighbors. Join us online at our 7 Thanks for listening to Our 7 Neighbors. Talk soon.